This morning, dear congregation, uh, I have a very large uh, portion of Scripture that I hope to cover with you. If you have your Bibles open, I would just uh, draw to your attention the trials that Luke records for us here in the book of Acts. In Acts 23, which is what we read and we considered last week, we read of Paul before the Sanhedrin. Then if you turn to chapter 24, you will see that here we have Paul's defense before Felix. Continuing to turn to chapter 25, we have Paul's defense before Festus. I'll explain these names as we come to them. And then in chapter 26, we have Paul's defense before Agrippa. So here you have these, these, uh, these trials that Luke records for us in the book of Acts, which gives great uh, credence to the idea that the book of Acts was actually used as a legal brief in Paul's defense when he went to Rome. And that Luke actually, when he wrote this book of Acts, had in his mind to defend Paul before the Roman authorities. And that's why so much space is given at the end of the book of Acts to these trials before the Sanhedrin, before Felix, Festus, and then Agrippa. Again, you always have to ask yourself, why did Luke choose to include uh, this material and, and not other material? Certainly there were many other things that Luke could have focused on. But very likely that's why. Luke wants to make clear that Paul was tried all these times. Furthermore, again, if you keep your Bible open and you look at Acts chapter 23 and verse 9, this is what we considered last week, you'll notice that Luke always highlights the parts where Paul is declared to be innocent. So in Acts 23 and verse 9, we read about the Pharisees amongst the Sanhedrin who stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. So again, Luke makes careful to include that in his account. That the Pharisees, at least, amongst the Sanhedrin, not the Sadducees, but the Pharisees, at least, were inclined to believe that Paul was innocent. And then if you stay in, verse, in chapter 23 and you come to verse 29, we didn't read this, but this is the letter that uh, the, uh, the uh, centurion commander in Jerusalem wrote to Felix. But look at verse 29. And I found him, that is, I found Paul, to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. Again, you might ask yourself, how could Luke possibly have known what was in this letter? Again, if you read uh, many Bible scholars, they say Luke just made this up. He just, he just wrote it up, made it up out of whole cloth. But don't forget that when, we, uh, when, when Paul got to Felix, when he was safely transported to Caesarea and he stood in, uh, before Felix in Felix's uh, courtroom, this letter was read. And Luke would have been there. And again, the, the, the memories of those peoples in those days was very good and very accurate, and much different than today. It was a very oral society. They spoke and remembered a lot this way in their minds. And so Luke would have heard that letter. That would have been part of the public record. And very likely, Luke even would have had access to this letter, much in the same way uh, that American justice provides, that 
the accused have access to the files that are, in, uh, that are both of the prosecution and of his defense. So Luke may very well have had access to this letter. He certainly would have remembered it being read. So there's no reason to believe, again, that Luke just made this letter up. But at any rate, Luke is careful to include this letter, likely because of verse 29, that the centurion commander says, I found no accusation in him deserving death or imprisonment. Then if you go to chapter 25, so now this is Paul before Festus, in 25 and verse 7, Luke includes this last clause there, right, that the Jews came down from Jerusalem, because now they're in Caesarea, they came down from Jerusalem and bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. An interesting little tidbit that Luke includes there. Acts 25, same chapter, drop down to verse 18. And it Festus says here, And when the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting. Again, very likely the implication being that they brought charges against him because he had violated their theology. He had violated their religion, their religious practices. And remember, the Romans were very, uh, had no patience with the Jews on these things. You guys take your arguments over jots and tittles and all these things to yourself. We don't care. And so Festus is saying, charges, serious charges that we could actually charge him with, I found nothing like that in him. Again, Luke is careful to record, record that. Then in chapter 25 and verse 26 and 27, here is uh, Festus explaining to Agrippa. Agrippa, by this time, has visited Caesarea, and Festus has told Agrippa about Paul. And, and, uh, and in, in verses 26 of chapter 25, Festus says, Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. In other words, uh, this uh, Paul had appealed to Rome. And Festus is telling Agrippa, I can send him to Rome, but I don't even know what the charges are against him. That's what he says in verse 26. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord, that is, to the emperor in Rome. Therefore I have brought him before you, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write, so that I can send him. I can't send him to Rome without charges. If I'm going to send him to Rome to stand trial before the emperor, I have to have a charge. Maybe you can find something in him, Agrippa, that's wrong. Now, another thing that's the dynamic here is that both these emperors, actually all three of these emperors, uh, but for sure Festus and Agrippa were very interested in uh, pleasing the Jews. They wanted the Jews' favor. They wanted it badly. Remember, we, we saw that even in Pontius Pilate, right, back when Jesus was accused. They desperately want the Jews' favor, so they want to find something against Paul. They really, really want to do the Jews a favor here, to curry their favor, right? <clears throat> well, then the, the, uh, the last one is in chapter 26 and verse 32, after Paul finishes his defense before Agrippa. Chapter 26 and verse 32, And Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So all these things are important for helping us to understand the purpose of why we have this book of Acts. In the providence of God, inspired by the Spirit, Luke very likely wrote out this book to serve Paul as a legal defense when he came before the emperor's court in Rome. Now, for our purposes, my friends, as I sat this week to, to work through these chapters, 
it, it occurred to me how interesting it is to note the different responses to Paul that each of these men has. And I was even able to see some parallels between the parable of the sower that Jesus preached and the gospel that Paul preaches here. The parallels aren't exact, but you can see some parallels there. So what I'd like to do is to consider with you this sermon, same gospel, different response. Same gospel, different response. The first group, then, that Paul comes before is the Sanhedrin. And we considered this last week, so I can be rather brief here, but I just want to point out to you the Sanhedrin and their response to the gospel. Now, children, in your notes, you see that table I gave there, and maybe you could take your pen and you can connect the group or the person with their specific response. So when you look at the, uh, the first thing there, the Jews, I want you to draw a line from the Jews to, see the last one on that right column there, rage. That's the blank there for all the rest of you as well. The Sanhedrin, the only response they seem to have is rage. And I looked in the, uh, the parable of the soils, couldn't find a soil to match the Jewish hatred. None of the soils fit this response. And so this one just stands on its own. The Jewish response to Paul's preaching is hatred, rage, to the point that they even form this conspiracy. And what a foolish vow to take, right? They're not even going to eat until they have Paul dead. The measure of Jewish hate, I find in verse uh, in, after they, they form that conspiracy. And in verse, uh, you have the, the number of soldiers. You see that in verse 23 of Acts 23. How badly did the Jewish, uh, was the Jewish hatred for Paul? Well, look at the number of soldiers, my friends, that the centurion commander marshals to conduct Paul safely to Caesarea from Jerusalem. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers, right? So in other words, a centurion would have had command of 100. So both these men, take all your men, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen. So we're at what now? 270. And 200 spearmen. My friends, can you imagine... 470 armed men to conduct one man from Jerusalem to Caesarea. How badly did the Jews hate Paul? This badly. It took 470 men in the centurion's judgment to safely conduct him from Caesarea to, or from Jerusalem to Caesarea. That's something, isn't it? It's striking to me that the people that Paul was the closest to hated him the worst. Remember, Paul even says, I am a Pharisee. Remember, he said that last week. I am a Pharisee. Paul sees himself as really the, the real Jew. I'm the one who has embraced the Messiah that we're all waiting for. You've rejected him. My friends, there's a, there's a point of application, if I may just stop here 
in the sermon and make this point. That oftentimes, isn't it sad, that it's the people we're the closest to that we have the most bitter disagreements with. Right, I can live right next door to a Catholic church, and I have disagreements with that man, with the head of that man, but I can speak with him, and we're cordial. But if I have a quarrel with somebody in my own church, why is it that that quarrel is so bitter with the person whom I'm, I really have, you know, I'm the closest to theologically, I'm the closest to in, the, in our worldview, the way we look at the world, our lifestyle, the choices, the values that we have. There's something dark there, isn't there? There's something sinister there. There's something devilish there. That we have the fiercest fights and quarrels with the people with whom we are the closest. Again, I just, I just want to bring that to your attention as I look at this at the measure of this Jewish hatred. Now, we have, of course, the, the, the description of this in the second psalm. Right? Why are the nations in an uproar? It begins. <clears throat> Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. These, these rulers, right? They come to in council together. And he who sits in the heavens laughs the Lord scoffs at them, then he will speak to them in his anger. I have set, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Well, this is what has happened in Jerusalem. God has set up Jesus as his king on his holy mountain, and the Jews have hated him. Now, for our own purposes then, when we think of what to do then in our own life when we meet with this kind of response, what did Paul do? when he met with this kind of response in his preaching, this kind of hatred. Well, I, I thought of Romans 10, verse 1. I didn't see anything in this particular chapter which would lead us to Paul's response, but I did remember of Romans 10, verse 1, where Paul writes, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, that is for the Jews, is their salvation. So how did Paul respond to this response. When Paul preached and he met with this kind of hatred, what was his response? What should our response be when we meet with this kind of hatred, this kind of vitriol, this kind of bitterness against the gospel? I think in a word, prayer. And I think Paul leads the way. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Prayer. Well, I come to the next one, to Felix. Now, Felix would have been the governor of Judea at this time. He would have been in roughly the same position as Pontius Pilate. He, his headquarters would have been in Caesarea, and that's why it was necessary to transfer Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea, because that's where Felix would have sat in court. Felix, no surprise here, was known as a rather cruel man. He was a, a typical Roman. He loved power. When the Jewish people revolted when they had their riots and their mob actions, which was typical amongst Jewish people, he put them down brutally. This did not uh, win him favor with his boss, with the Roman leadership, the emperor in Rome. The Romans wanted Felix to be more congenial, to win the Jews over, to be kind to them, to win their favor. But what can we say about Felix and his response? Well, it's in chapter 24 that we have Felix's, uh, when Paul comes before Felix. If you look at chapter 24 and verse 2, you see that Paul is summoned, 
and the Jewish people have an attorney or a lawyer, a prosecutor with them named Tertullus. And Tertullus is going to speak to the governor on behalf of the Jewish people and make the case against Paul. And you can see verse 5, kind of the charges that they bring here. Chapter 24 and verse 5, For we have found this man a real pest, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. But when we come to Felix, how does Felix respond? Because then Paul gives his uh, response to this. Uh, and you can see that in verse 10. And when the governor had nodded for him, that is for Paul to speak, Paul responded, and Paul gives his defense. Then in verse 25, we have something of the response of Felix. Uh, first go to verse 22. First go to verse 22, because here we are told that Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, you know Christians were called back then the way. So Felix knows about Christianity. He knows a good deal about them already. Uh, Luke records for us here that he had an exact or a precise, accurate knowledge of the way. So he had, you might say, done his homework. He knows whom he's dealing with. And furthermore, there is in the mind of Felix and his wife, Drusilla, some curiosity about Christianity. Because Paul has finished his speech to Felix. And notice in verse 24, but some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And we're told that the message that Paul brought in verse 25 and as he, that is Paul, was discussing righteousness, so think righteous living, what it means to live a righteous life, self-control. Now you might think, why, why would Paul make such a focus on self-control? Very likely the reason is because he knows Felix. And Felix had been married once, but he had met Drusilla, and he had been so smitten with Drusilla that he dismissed his first wife in a very, uh, even for the Romans, not a nice way, and married Drusilla. So likely Paul is, is focusing on that self-control because Felix clearly uh, was deficient in that regard and the judgment to come. So three points here, righteous, righteous living, self-control, and the judgment to come. But then notice here we have Felix's response. Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present. And when I find time, I will summon you. To me, this sounds like the seed that fell on the thorny soil. Let me read to you from the parable. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. So notice the, the seed that falls amongst the thorns are the ones who have heard. And I think there's more implied there than just hearing. They hear, they understand, but they're choked with different things. They have other concerns. Now what was Felix's concern? We are told that in verse 26, at the same time too, he, that is Felix, was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. So Felix was hoping for a bribe. Perhaps Felix had in his mind 
that the Christians would be so desperate to have Paul set free that they'd be willing to part with a large sum of money. Even though he knew the Christians weren't generally wealthy people, he thought they're so desperate to have Paul free that maybe they'll, they'll give a lot of money because they really want Paul free badly. So here is the thorny soil. It, the seed takes root. It springs up, right? Felix has an understanding of what Christianity is. He even trembles a bit when Paul speaks, probably of the judgment to come. He even trembles a bit, right? But then it's choked out. Why? Because Felix has a desire for the pleasures of this life and riches. He's hoping for a bribe. So children, I trust you can make the connection there on your little table, on your notes. But Felix is this hard, cruel man with his mind fixed on a bribe. And so he cannot hear the gospel. So what about us? When we meet with people like this, whose lives are, are taken up with the things of this world, and even though they hear the gospel, they understand the gospel, they really have their mind fixed on riches. Well, you know, I can't help but notice that Paul's point here is to speak about hell and damnation. Paul has a, a goal here, to terrify Felix. And he, he had some success that by the power of the Spirit on the conscience and on the soul of Felix, Paul is able to preach in such a way that Felix trembles. He's frightened. In fact, the word in Greek is even he was terrified. And so there's an appropriate time and place for that, right? We don't stand in the pulpit and constantly preach hell and damnation. But unbelievers need to know. If you're an unbeliever this morning, you need to know that your future is unspeakably grim and dark beyond belief. And if you tremble at that, then praise God. I pray that your trembling would lead you to embrace Christ in faith, to get out of hell. Some of us will remember sermons that we've read. Remember the very famous sermon, Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where he compares unbelievers. Well, he has a variety of pictures that are absolutely hair-raising. You won't forget reading a sermon like that, even as a believer. To read a sermon like that is to worship God for what he saved you from. But, but basically, the, the thrust of that sermon is that unbelievers are walking over the pit of hell on like a rotten covering. At any moment, it can give way and they'll fall through and fall into eternal condemnation. Well, there's a place for that kind of preaching, isn't there? I know that's not the kind of preaching that fills churches, but clearly Paul leads the way for us here that there is a time when unbelievers do need to be frightened and terrified. <clears throat> and so I think that's a strategy that we, as God's evangelists in this world, can also remember that where we see people trembling in the face of death, strike while the iron is hot and show them that there is a, a, a terrifying place for unbelievers, even as we quickly come with the gospel, that there is a way of escape that God also brings salvation very close to everyone, and that by faith in Christ, they can have a full, well-grounded assurance that they will not go to that place. I come now to Festus. Festus. Festus was the man who replaced Felix. The Roman leadership finally grew weary with Felix, and they dismissed him and replaced him with Festus. So Festus transitioned into the a governorship of Judea, and he took over from Felix. And so naturally, Festus is interested to take over this case from uh, Felix and desires to know how he should handle this. 
Now, you would, let's start with uh, Acts chapter 25 and verse 9. And we see what's true again. Festus doesn't want to make the same mistake Felix did. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor. Again, he's trying to curry the favor of the Jews. But what is the response of Festus? We come to Acts 25 and verse 19. So here is, uh, here is uh, Festus, and what has happened here is that King Agrippa has come onto the scene. King Agrippa has visited Caesarea. You see that in verse 13. And when King Agrippa comes, Festus is now explaining to Agrippa, I've got this guy here. He, he's accused by the Jews of all sorts of things. I can't find any charge to pin on him. Maybe you can listen to him once. And you can see that Festus's response is given us in verse 19. He's telling Agrippa, But they, that is the Jews, simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a certain dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. And in verse 20, he goes on, Being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial, but Paul appealed to the emperor. He appealed to go to Rome. So this is Festus's response. A certain dead man, Jesus, who Paul thinks is living. That is the extent of Festus's response to Paul's preaching. I want to put Festus as one of those, like the pathway, the road. Uh, we read in Luke 8, those beside the road are those who have heard. The seed is scattered. Remember, it falls on the pathway. They have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. In other words, the seed that falls on the pathway doesn't even have time to put out roots. It doesn't even take hold at all. Before that can even happen, the bird comes, plucks up the seed and eats it, and it's gone. And that's what happens with Festus here. Jesus is just some dead man who Paul thinks is alive. Furthermore, if you turn to chapter 26, where now Paul is on trial before Agrippa, but again, stay with Festus here. I'm still with Festus because Festus and Agrippa are trying Paul together. But as Paul is explaining to Agrippa, we see another response of Festus, and that's in verse 24. So chapter 26 and verse 24. And while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. In other words, you know, what? like with Felix, we saw a little stirring there, didn't we? we he, he, he trembled. There, there was some interest. But Festus just has, he thinks Paul is just completely stark mad. Just crazy. And he roars out at, at, at Paul. Paul, you've been studying for so long that your mind is gone. It, 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 your mind's left you. You're bereft of sense. This is Festus's response. He has no use for the gospel. The seed that Paul plants, before it can even push out a root, it's gone. Plucked up by a bird and taken away. This is Festus's response to Paul's preaching. What can we say about a strategy then for dealing with people like Festus? Well, I thought hard about this. I don't see anything necessarily in the chapter here that would lead us uh, except one small thing. 
One small thing in Acts 26 and verse 26. After Festus roars out at Paul that Paul is out of his mind, notice what, notice what Paul does. He doesn't really respond to Festus. He turns his attention to Agrippa. In verse 26, for the king, in other words, for the king Agrippa, right? If you back up to verse 25, Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. Verse 26, for the king knows about these matters. In other words, Paul turns his back on Festus. He, he recognizes that, that Festus is not under any impression at all or even interest in what he's saying. But he does sense that he has an in with Agrippa. Agrippa is not sitting there as just an idle spectator. I'll say something about Agrippa on the next point. But do you see that? And my friends, I think there's a point there because remember what Jesus said, that when you come into a town and they have no use for your preaching, that you can shake the dust off your feet and move to the next town. And so there's a lesson for us there too, that in our witness to this world, there are people who we finally have to turn away from. We do finally have to shake the dust off our feet and turn to other people who are more open to hearing it. That too is a biblical method uh, for, for, for being an effective minister of the gospel in our world. To recognize that there are festuses out there. And that as soon as you preach to them, the birds pluck the seed away. They have no interest in hearing. And it's a perfectly biblical thing. It's a very sad thing to do. We do it with a broken heart. But we turn from them to those who will listen. So I think that's a strategy for us that we can learn from Paul's dealing with Festus. I come now to Agrippa. Agrippa would have been the king of the region, so a much higher person uh, in the Roman hierarchy than Felix or Festus. He would have been over them. He would have ruled quite a large variety of territories, which would have included Judea. Felix and Festus just had charge of Judea. But King Agrippa was a much higher man in the Roman leadership. But notice that Agrippa, like Felix before him, seems to have an interest in what Paul is saying. So in chapter 26, uh, uh, in verse 1, Agrippa says to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself, and Paul begins to speak. And in verse 28 and 29, we have the interesting verses of Agrippa's response to Paul's preaching. So Festus has just roared out that Paul is out of his mind, but notice that Agrippa is not so rough with Paul. And as, as Paul turns away from Festus and focuses on King Agrippa, in verse 27, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Now this is an interesting thing, that we know that Agrippa was a man who practiced the Jewish religion. He had great respect for the Jewish religion. Now, was that just because he wanted to win favor with the Jewish people? Very likely. I mean, it's hard to read motives, right? Was he a sincere Jewish person? We'll leave that alone. But at any rate, Agrippa had great respect for the Jewish religion. And so he listens carefully to Paul. And, and in verse 28, you see Agrippa's reply. And this, is, this could be interpreted in different ways. Let's read verse 28. And Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. Now, the meaning that I, I don't accept is that Agrippa is asking a question here, something, saying something to the effect of, 
Paul, do you think that in such a short time you're going to convince me to become a Christian? In other words, Paul, you're up there reasoning and arguing and, and presenting all these things. Do you think that in just one speech you're going to persuade me to become a Christian? Me, King Agrippa? Now, again, I don't accept that meaning. I think that the, 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 the better meaning is what we have here in our own translation. Notice that our translation put a period at the end of verse 28. So they're making it not a question, but a statement. A statement in which Agrippa is saying, Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. So we have Agrippa saying, you know, Paul, if you kept on talking this way, you're almost persuading me to become a Christian. Agrippa is saying, and, 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 and saying, you know, many of the arguments, Paul, that you're saying are compelling. I'm listening to you, Paul, and I'm understanding what you're saying, and you've got some good points. You've got some good arguments to make. And if you continue like this, you might even persuade me to become a Christian. And that's why I say that just like Felix before, I think that there is something of a stirring in the mind and the heart of Paul, or Agrippa, that the Spirit of God is pressing home the gospel on, on Agrippa, and he's feeling the pressure of it. He's feeling the power of it. And I think that the, the main reason why I, I take that understanding of verse 28 is verse 29. Because when Paul responds to him, he says, Paul said, I would to God that whether in a short or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. In other words, fully persuaded of the gospel. Not just partially, almost persuaded might become such as I am except for these chains. This is King Agrippa. And I see King Agrippa as like that rocky soil. The rocky soil. In Luke 8, verse 13, we read, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. Now, I don't know that Agrippa received it with joy. Maybe there's not quite a perfect parallel there. Maybe he received it more just with some interest. But the, uh, Jesus said, these people receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. They believe for a while. I think those words accurately capture Agrippa. He, he feels the force of what Paul is arguing. He feels the reasoning behind it. It's sound reasoning. But pretty soon the speech comes to an end. Agrippa gets up, right? He has his wife Bernice with him. And in great pomp and splendor, right, with their flowing robes and all the wealth that was at their disposal, and the claims of the gospel are pushed out of sight. This is King Agrippa. One of the Roman historians, or the Jewish historians at this time, was Josephus. And he notes in his history that this same high priest, Ananias, the one who slapped or tried to slap Paul, remember last week, and Paul called him a whitewashed wall? That Ananias, between the break when Felix died and Festus was transitioning into power, he grabbed James, the apostle James, and put him to death. And when Agrippa heard about that, because some of the Jewish people complained to Agrippa about that, Agrippa sacked Ananias deposed him from the high priesthood. Again, this is just another piece of this puzzle that fits this idea, my friends, that Agrippa had a somewhat of a friendly attitude towards not only Judaism, but even Christianity. That he heard Paul's arguments and was even partially convinced by them. 
That is King Agrippa, the rocky soil. My friends, in my first point of application, I want to point out to you, as we clearly see in, the, in this history, that there is a work of the Spirit of God upon the heart of an unbeliever that does not result in their salvation. Again, theologians have called these different things common convictions or non-saving convictions. Remember, I think it was uh, two weeks ago that we talked about the call of the gospel, right? We, we read those three articles from the Canons of Door. Well, not only is there a, a general call of the gospel that goes forth to unbelievers, but there is even a general working of the Spirit in a non-saving way in the hearts of unbelievers. The Spirit of God caused Felix to tremble, to fear. The Spirit of God worked on the heart of Agrippa so that he was interested in hearing the word of the gospel. But in neither of those two men did it result in their salvation. In Genesis 6, you know we read about the Spirit of God. It says there, uh, the, will, the, will my spirit always strive with man? But we have this truth taught us even more clearly in the book of Hebrews. A very frightening verse of Scripture. The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4. He writes about, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened. So he's, speaking, he's talking about people who were enlightened. They, the light of the gospel shone into their hearts. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. What does that mean? I, I don't know exactly what it means, my friends, but it certainly must mean at least something to the effect that they, they took pleasure in the gospel. They were interested in it. They tasted of it. They were made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Three things here. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. That's why I say, my friends, that it's possible for even an unbeliever to receive these workings, these convictions, these movements of the Spirit of God. But it's in a common and a non-saving way. There is that work of the Spirit of God upon the hearts of even those who are reprobates. And that's an unsettling thing for us, isn't it? As we think about our own profession of being Christian, of being Christians, and we can think to ourselves, am I one of those who have been called effectually by the Spirit of God? In other words, called by the Spirit of such, in such a way that God changed my heart, called me out of darkness, and gave me that new life, and gave me the saving work of the Spirit of God? Or am I simply one of those that has received just these common convictions, which are common to many people who tremble at the Word of God, or who perhaps are very interested in the Word of God, I've told you before, when I was in seminary, how we heard a speech by a man uh, who was a professor at the University of Michigan and studied scripture. That was his job. He was a professor in the religion department. He studied scripture all day long, but he was not a Christian. So that brings me to my second point, and that is that God wants us to be certain, my friends. How do I know that? Because Paul wanted 
Agrippa to be certain. Paul says, Agrippa, I wish that you weren't just like halfway along the pathway. I wish that I just hadn't partially convinced you. I wish that just the short time I've been with you, I, I, you've seen some reason and some compelling truth in my arguments. Agrippa, I wish that you were thoroughly and, and soundly a Christian like I am. And my friends, what, what Paul said to Agrippa, I say to you this morning that I want you all to be soundly and thoroughly converted, not just partially convinced. It especially weighs heavy on a person who's a pastor and who has a charge from God to lead a congregation. I believe firmly, congregation, that pastors will stand with their congregation on the last day and will have to give an account for what they've done and what they've taught the people of God. But you see, my friends, it's so important that we have a well-grounded assurance of being the people of God. Many people have an assurance of salvation, but it's, it's, it's the assurance of a hypocrite. It will, it, will be, it, will, it will disappoint them in the end. It will fall to pieces. And so as your pastor and as Paul was preaching to Agrippa, his point is that we have a well-grounded assurance. And of course, this is the question that... that, that so many people think about because really, my friends, is there any question greater than this? Does anything else matter in life than this? Is there anything more important than knowing that I'm really and truly soundly a Christian and that when I stand before God someday, the door of salvation, the door of heaven will go open to me and that I won't be like those five foolish virgins who got to the gate of heaven fully expecting to enter in, but the gate remained shut and God said those terrifying words, I never knew you. Does anything else matter in this life? And as I see Paul speaking to Agrippa, I'm struck with astonishment, my friends, at the, at the eternal reality of what is taking place. Everything is at stake here. Here's Agrippa wavering between life and death. He's wavering between heaven and hell. And Paul, with a broken heart, cries out, Agrippa, I wish, I wish to God, Paul says, don't forget those two words. He says, I wish to God that you were altogether one like I am. You know, in my, in my upbringing, uh, we were taught that the only possible way you can be really sure of your salvation is if you have a powerful experience of God speaking to you, almost a Pentecostal kind of experience that, that you never can forget. Now, some people have such an experience, no question. But that's not the answer, is it? That's not the answer. That's clearly not what Scripture teaches. And I'd like to close, my friends, by turning to 2 Peter. Because again, I want to lean on the Word of God here. This is a question of such importance that we dare not look to anything else but to the Word of God. And in 2 Peter 1 and verse 10, Peter writes to his, to his, to his readers, he says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Are you called effectually by the Spirit of God this morning? Or do, you, do we simply have one of the, a common call that will never save us? Are you elect from all eternity? How can we answer that question? We can't look into God's book of election and see if our name is written there. How can we know? Well, Peter says, Be diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. In other words, you don't need to live in doubt on that point, my friends. 
We don't need to live in uncertainty. We can be confident. We can be sure. And that confidence goes back to the lifestyle and the, the, the character of Christians, which Peter develops in the previous verses. In verse 80, he says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a change of life. There is a lifestyle, my friends, that manifests to us that we are God's children. Notice I'm not saying that we are saved, that, that we don't get right with God by having a certain kind of lifestyle. That would be backwards, wouldn't it? My question, the, the question this morning is not how do I get saved, but how do I know that I am saved? How do I make my calling and election sure? I put for our reference there, my friends, these articles from the Canons of Dort again, where it's, it's so wonderfully and clearly taught us. In Article 12, it says, Assurance of this, their eternal and unchangeable election to salvation, is given to the chosen in due time, though by various stages and in differing measure. Such an assurance comes not by inquisitive searching into the hidden and deep things of God, but by noticing within themselves. Now follow me closely, my friends. But by noticing within themselves with spiritual joy and holy delight. Children, do you have your pen out? Maybe you could just circle these things. The unmistakable fruits of election. The unmistakable fruits of election. My friends, I hope now your ears are wide open. This is the only thing that matters. The unmistakable fruits of election. Am I elect or am I not? The unmistakable fruits of election pointed out in God's word, such as a true faith in Christ. That's first, right? That's the first. A childlike fear of God, a godly sorrow for their sins, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. And you can read Article 13, which continues along the same lines. My friends, this is how we know. This is how we know that we have the Spirit of God within us, because the Spirit has its effect upon our character. And we begin to live, to act, to think like those who are joined to Jesus Christ by faith. Those are the unmistakable fruits of election, the marks of God's grace within us. And that's what's so important, my friends, to understand that part of the gospel. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. But I ask you now, and that's the question that's before us, as we see Paul speaking to Agrippa, how do I know? that I have a true faith in Christ and that God has effectually called me out of darkness and to his light. For that, my friends, we notice within ourselves the unmistakable fruits of election. And that calls us to self-examination. That calls us to notice within ourselves. And that's the work that I believe Paul calls us, just as he called Agrippa, to this day. Well, may God bless these words to us. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you this morning and, and we do tremble, Lord, with Felix because we think of the awful judgment that is to come. We think of your all-seeing eye which looks not just at our outward actions. We can all see that, but which looks at our heart. That all-seeing eye which looks into our heart to see whether there really is that true faith in Christ, that hunger and thirst for righteousness, that godly fear, that sorrow for sin that marks all your people. Lord, help us this morning as we, as we contemplate this, this point of making our calling and our election sure. 
Lord, I pray that we would never go wrong on this issue. Lord, I pray for those who may struggle with this, who struggle to see in their own soul the unmistakable fruits of election. I pray, Lord, that you'd come with power into their heart. Give them a fresh sight of the Lord Jesus Christ and a fresh resolve to follow him all the days of their life. Lord, I pray for those who are walking with you, Lord, for all of us who profess to be Christians this morning. That again, Lord, we would not dismiss this call. That we would look at Agrippa. That we would look at Paul. That we would recognize, Lord, the, the, the seriousness of what it means to be a human person in this life. A human person called by God to forsake sin and to take refuge in Jesus. Lord, help us then to make our calling and election sure, to walk with you day by day, and to every day commit ourselves to living a life that brings honor and glory to your name. And Lord, we do earnestly pray that you would keep us from deceiving ourselves on this all-important point, so that we would never be amongst those who are shocked on the last day to be turned away from heaven when we thought to enter in. Lord, will you remember us then in your mercy? Keep us close to you. Give us faith in Christ and help us to walk with you day by day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn now in the uh, blue hymnal to number 186. 186. Sing to the Lord, the rock of our salvation. Sing to the Lord a song of joy and praise. Kneel in his presence, lowly in thanksgiving. The lofty psalm upraise. Well, the, in the sermon this morning, we didn't have an example of someone who responded to the gospel uh, in, a, in the correct way, in a way of true faith. But here we can sing of it, right? Sing to the Lord, the rock of our salvation. Let's sing all four verses of number 186 in the blue hymnal.
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.